Welcome to Paranormal Underground Radio. Join us each week as we delve into some of life's most complex questions. It's time to explore the unexplained. And welcome back to Paranormal Underground Radio. I am your host, Cheryl Knight. And tonight we are talking with a return guest. She is Louisa Oakley Green. And we first spoke with Louisa a couple months ago about her book, Loitering at the Gate to Eternity, Memoirs of a Psychic Bystander. And we are talking to her today primarily about her second book, Sightseeing in the Undiscovered Country, Tales Retold by a Psychic Bystander. And before we get started, I wanted to just remind you a little bit about Louisa and her background. Louisa did not believe in psychic phenomena when she first met her husband, Stephen, but now more than 20 years later, her views have changed. Her two books in the Psychic Bystander series, Loitering at the Gate to Eternity, Memoirs of a Psychic Bystander, and Sightseeing in the Undiscovered Country, Tales Retold by a Psychic Bystander, both reflect her journey from skeptic to believer through hundreds of paranormal stories involving her family and everyday people across the U.S. and around the world. Louisa has worked as a newspaper reporter, humor columnist, health magazine editor, public relations manager, advertising copywriter, medical writer, and executive creative director of a digital advertising agency. And these days, she actually earns her living as a freelance writer. Welcome, Louisa. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me again. (laughs) It seems like just yesterday, but but it's actually been two months since we did our first podcast. Has it been that long? Yes. Can you believe it? Yeah, that went fast. I'm actually very happy that you are back again because we had ended, I believe, the last discussion on a very interesting note, and it involved your second book and some of the contents of the book, and that centered around some studies. But first, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the book. Sightseeing in the Undiscovered Country is a second anthology of more than 100 true paranormal stories. Now, that sounds like a lot of work. How did you collect all of those stories? Uh, I interviewed people. Um, I didn't know what they had for me. I don't tell people what I want. Um, I just uh, kind of put, you know, put it out there. Hey, if you've got a, a story about a, you know, mystic experience that you'd like to share with me, then, mm-hmm. you know, just let me know and uh, I'll interview you. And I never know what I'm going to end up with, but I ended up with some pretty interesting things in my second book. Um, you know, this uh, chapter is about uh, dead relatives coming back. There's, uh, there's a chapter about near-death experiences. People had out-of-body experiences, all sorts of things. Uh, One person saw something mystic that I I really couldn't explain, although Mm -hmm. when I went searching on the Internet, I found there were other people who had had this same really crazy experience. And so I sent sent that to the woman I interviewed, and she said, oh, now I don't feel crazy. (laughs) Right. Um, So there's a lot of stuff out there. It's interesting, um, you know, and... Because I have the science background, I like to write about people's experiences, and that's kind of the mystic part of these books. But I also always like to include something factual. So in the first book, I went into the the history of a lot of these phenomena. You know, a lot of these things have been in cultures for thousands of years. You know, almost since written civilization. So they're not new types of things. So that was in my first book, and in the second book, I thought, wow, you know, it would be nice to find some really legitimate studies, not like the crazy stuff where they're putting their flashlight on their face and screaming because <laughs> they're in a house, 
Um, you know, I mean, that's fun, you know, but that's <laughs> right. not really scientific. But things that are being okay. done by universities, by governments, by the military, who are, you know, investing millions of dollars in this research, which, which makes me think, well, they must think there's some credibility to it, um, which I always find amusing because if you were to ask any of them publicly, they would, mm-hmm. you know, disclaim that they're doing anything. But there's, these studies are coming out and mm-hmm. spending millions of dollars on it. So <laughs> right. somebody thinks these things are worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the way that you, that you and, and other people connect through, you know, the Internet and different ways these days is amazing because you probably wouldn't know most of these stories if you didn't if we didn't have that technology now to reach out to people all over the world even. And so I think that's amazing well, that now people yeah, have a place absolutely. to go. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly the case with the second book. The first book, people just kind of by word of mouth found out about it and called me. Okay. Uh, the second book, however, um, uh, there are people from all around the world in it, and you're right. Without um, Facebook and Twitter, and also my book signings where I actually meet people, mm-hmm. um, a lot of those stories, you know, would not have ended up in the book. And there's a couple of stories that are actually from radio personalities who interviewed me and said, oh, I've had some interesting stuff. And I went, hey, there's no reason why you can't be in the book. (laughs) It's almost like each person you talk to has their own little story. It's kind of amazing. It's very unique. I mean, there was the young lady in England who was a radio personality. And when we got off the radio and she started telling me her stories, she was one of the few people who had what I would consider to be scary stories because most stories involving mystic experiences are actually very comforting. Right. And they didn't scare her, though. Like, I would be scared if I experienced what she did. They didn't scare her. She she just is so used to seeing dead people. <laughs> um, but <laughs> if I hadn't asked her at the end of the radio interview, I would have lost all of these wonderful stories mm-hmm. from England. And, of course, they have more ghosts in England than they know what to mm-hmm. do with. Because, I mean, people have been living there since before the Roman times. Yeah. You know, so... And they're just building on top of each other. Yeah, I think it's interesting because some of the individuals you highlight in the book, they've worked in such a wide variety of fields, such as like healthcare, law enforcement, education, engineering. They're very, I wouldn't say scientific minded, but they have this detail oriented brain. And some of them are scientific um, minded. Totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, they are what we would consider the bedrock of our society. Police officers, nurses, teachers, you know, uh, mm-hmm. executives. They're not sitting and chanting somewhere. They, these, are <laughs> these are people who are like, they're they very can't methodical. understand why they're having these experiences. Okay. You know, okay. Some, of, some of them always have and they're, and they're very open to it. Mm-hmm. And others are like, what the heck is going on? I don't believe in this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that's kind of interesting. So I saw a quote where you said, I think it was in the book description, quote, when you finish reading their personal accounts, perhaps like me, you may never view reality the same way again. And I really love that quote. I want to know how did their account shift your perspective about the paranormal or, or mystical side of life so dramatically? I guess because when I started off, like, you know, my husband and I will be married 25 years next year. Um, so 26 years ago, before I met him, mm-hmm. um, I really did not grow up in an environment where this sort of stuff was taken seriously. I mean, <clears throat> it was the type of thing you laughed at, you know, that crazy person, you know, how could they believe that nonsense? Mm-hmm. And so I came into it with a really bad attitude <laughs> and um, not very open-minded either. And I, I, 
I always say this. I I sometimes think the universe has a sense of humor in it. It'll take someone like I was, oh, you yeah. know, very narrow, and uh, have fun with me. <laughs> oh yeah. So you know, I I fell in love with this man who turned out to. He mentioned he was psychic when we were dating, and I thought that was charming because his family came from Italy, and I thought, oh, that's the old world charm. You know, they believe in this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I came to realize it was a little bit more than that. And then I, <clears throat> we ended up having so many friends who had psychic experiences. And I also found out to my great surprise when I was writing my first book, um, and I let it be known what I was writing it about, mm-hmm. that people I'd known all my life who had never discussed this with me because they didn't think I would take it seriously, people only talk to people they feel safe with, right. um, started opening up to me. And I realized that lots of people I knew um, you know, they were having these experiences as well. I was surrounded by it. So just because I wasn't having them personally, that didn't mean that it wasn't a part of the human experience around me. And mm-hmm. I kind of came to, con- to the conclusion that mystic experiences are part of the human experience. Yeah, interesting. And I think the more you hear different accounts from different people, they don't even necessarily need to be proven the whole conglomeration of all these different experiences kind of speak for themselves, in, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I have more than 200 stories in, in these two books, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if you put them together. And they're all unique and interesting, and I felt quite sure, because I've, I've been a journalist for many years. I've interviewed people, you know, for almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. I can pretty much tell when somebody is, like, you know, kind of BSing me. And <laughs> yeah. these people were were very sincere. They had nothing to gain. They weren't paid for their stories. They only got their first name in the book, so mm-hmm. they're not going to get famous. Um, they were sharing it because they wanted to talk to somebody. In fact, almost everyone I interviewed after the interview said, oh, wow, you're the first person I've really had a chance to just sit down and talk to you about this, and it feels so good. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you for listening to me. And I thought, wow, it's just kind of like I'm a psychic counselor here. <laughs> That is so true. That's really interesting, too, because coming from your initial start as a skeptic to where you are now, it's you have both sides of the equation down. You know what it's like to be on both sides. So I think you make a very good psychic counselor or experienced counselor. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. I've had a couple of radio shows where it's not like a paranormal show. It's just a regular radio show like CBS or something. Mm-hmm. And they'll start off with, why should we believe in anything in mm-hmm. your book? Why should we believe in anything like this? And I always reply, you shouldn't believe in anything. You know, like belief is something that you can only come to through your own personal experiences. Right. So I don't tell anybody that they should or shouldn't believe anything. You believe what yeah. you believe, you know, um, and, and it disarms them immediately because they're expecting me to argue with them. Well, I'm right. not going to argue with them. I mean, yeah. I didn't believe in it either, you know, 25 years ago. So, you know, I'm not going to have an attitude about somebody else who, you know, you, you believe what you believe. That's how we all are. Right. And you can't, I mean, you, you may have the most most staunch skeptic. It, it, you're not going to prove anything to them no matter what you say or what you show. That's just how it is sometimes. You, you come to it uh, through your own experiences. And mm-hmm. if it's meant to be, you'll get the experiences you need to convince you if, if you are able to be convinced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know I mean for me it took a lot of convincing and, <laughs> but you know you marry somebody and then their half of their family is psychic because it does tend to be inherited um, in fact Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell who was a neuropsychologist who taught at Harvard Medical School not you know no slouch mm-hmm. uh, she found through her studies that uh, psychic ability tends to be inherited because 
it comes from a hypersensitive brain nervous system antenna. And uh, people who are psychic pick up on energy that is, you know, far more refined than the average person can pick up on. Mm-hmm. So, Interesting. yeah, there actually have been some valid studies done on these things. So speaking of the valid studies... <laughs> For this particular book, you included highlights, as we've already talked about, from several recent university and military studies. And these studies looked at consciousness, near-death experiences, reincarnation, and other paranormal or mystical type topics. Can you, well, first, can you tell me why you decided to take the approach of including these types of studies in the book? Because for a living, I'm a science writer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I'm also a journalist, so I interview people. So that, that's, part, that's one side of me. But I also uh, do science writing. Uh, I do a lot of um, life sciences and environmental writing. And so it's very natural for me to want to research the latest studies. Yeah. And so I thought, well, there must be some valid studies that have been done on psychic stuff, not just the nonsense you see with people screaming and running around with flashlights on television. And, and again, that's fun stuff. I'm not trying to say it isn't, mm-hmm. but it's not scientific. And there are a lot of studies out there, and I decided that I would include them, uh, you know, in in my book. I had to be very careful to rewrite them all uh, so that I didn't rewrite the meaning. I had to Mm -hmm. rewrite the content so that they wouldn't think I stole their study. Right. Um, But the information is so good that it would be uh, a loss for the average person not to be able to see this stuff because these these are really important research facilities that are doing this. I mean, mm-hmm. if I were to read you a who's who of, of where the research is coming from, there's the Rhine Research Institute, which is the granddaddy of them all, uh, which originated at Duke University and now has its own location. Mm-hmm. There's uh, something called the Boundary Institute in Saratoga, uh, California. The Noetic Sciences, which um, kind of absorbed the Consciousness Research Laboratory at the University of Nevada. Uh, the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, which has wonderful, wonderful studies, um, and I'm going to probably share some of those. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mind Matter Unification Project at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. Like, wow. These are really important that universities. sounds cool. Yeah. Princeton <laughs> University also had their own uh, anomalies research lab. They eventually merged into the International Consciousness Research Laboratories, okay. uh, which I think is still in Princeton. I mean, there's, and of course, you know, there's the Air Force and the military, um, you know, they, they, where they're doing uh, spy mm-hmm. <laughs> activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of groups out there, universities, military, even governments, that um, are spending millions and millions of dollars to try to figure out what this stuff is all about. And the buzzword, of course, they can't say paranormal research because mm-hmm. who would fund that? Right. So they use the more scientific term, consciousness research, but it means the same thing. Right. So I get the feeling lately that this type of study, even though they're, you know, they're labeling it a little differently, is becoming a little more acceptable in academic research and institutions. Do you think that's true? Um, I think that some... Universities are okay with it, and some aren't. Um, I mean, I'm currently getting a, a graduate degree at a university, and oh. they know I've published two books, and they're not putting it in their graduate newsletter. <laughs> ah, okay. Oh well, so, shoot. Um, <laughs> well, they're a very they're they're a um, a very conservative university, so okay, that's probably why. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I were to have written it on any other religion, mainstream religion, they would mm-hmm. would have been in the newsletter. 
Okay. Particularly since my second book has won a, a ton of awards. Okay. So <laughs> I think that there still is a stigma. Yeah. Um, and that's why people don't talk about this very much and why they feel so great when they can unload when I interview them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you yeah. don't know who you can talk to. Yeah, and, and, and I do know that there's still, a, you know, even people that I know that are involved in, let's say, our magazine, Paranormal Underground Magazine, they can't reveal their real name because they're in a scientific job and they, they're they afraid of, of the backlash of what would happen if someone, you know, found out that and they're there is, involved there is with this. backlash. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sad. One example would be Dr. Diane Hennessy-Powell. Mm-hmm. She came out with her book, which was a clinical scientific look at all of the valid studies that have been done on the paranormal. Okay. And they tried to take her license away. Wow. She had to fight them in court. She mm. won, but Good. Good. it cost a lot of money sure. to win. Yeah. Uh, so one can certainly, and I mean, honestly, <laughs> well, there, there's, there are people who are very uh, vicious when it comes to stuff like this. And I guess a lot of other things we can see in the news, you know. Is it just from a fear of of something that they don't know, or why is this stigma still attached to the degree that it is? It's funny, because I wrote about this in the conclusion of my first book, that there's two groups that tend to be very hostile toward paranormal um, inquiry. Mm -hmm. One is people who are very religious, because they feel that it is associated with a negative sort of energy. Okay. And the other group are people who are very scientific because they think that you're crazy. <laughs> so it's attacked from both sides. You know, it fascinates me, and it also makes me feel like, well, whatever happened to open inquiry? Right. I, mean, I can understand a religious fanatic having mm-hmm. a problem with it. I actually can understand that, but I cannot understand someone with a scientific background not looking at particularly the type of book that Dr. Uh, Hennessy Powell put out, you would not want to read it. It is dry. It is very scientific. Okay. It's not like she put out, you know, something crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but because she was willing to look at it, and I, I can't remember if I said, uh, talked about it in the last radio program, but there's a reason why she became interested in the paranormal. She had an experience early in her life, mm-hmm. and that's how everybody gets <laughs> interested in the paranormal and mm-hmm. how everyone uh, who believes in it uh, develops their belief because they've had a personal experience. And in her case, um, she had a birthday party, and her parents hired this guy to come in, and what his talent was, you could take any book out of her father's library, mm-hmm. any book you wanted, open it up to any page, and he could recite to you what you were pointing at. Interesting. How could someone possibly do that? Yes, I'd like okay? to know. <laughs> yeah, well, she wanted to know, too, and that's one of the reasons why, even though she went to okay. John Hopkins University, which is a very prestigious place, and got a degree and was teaching at Harvard Medical School, that she found herself wondering, how could this be? <laughs> right. And she started to explore it. And, I mean, the same thing goes for um, Joseph Banks Rhine, who started the Rhine Research Center, which is really one of the first uh, college-based uh, paranormal research centers in the country, and he did that in the 1930s. He didn't start that because he went to college and decided he'd become a paranormal researcher. He he didn't know anything about paranormal until he met his his mentor in college at the University of Chicago, who said, I had this really strange experience. He was at a cocktail party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just talking, you know. And he goes, this is what happened when I was a kid. My father was a, a medical doctor, and it was out in the country, and, you know, 
nobody had cars and nobody had phones. And this woman came up to our house one evening and begged my father, uh, could he, you know, uh, give her a ride to uh, her brother's farm? You know, she didn't have a car. They were quite novel in those days. And would he mind giving her a ride out there? She, he said, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what's wrong? And she said, well, I had this really vivid dream and I dreamt that my, my brother uh, was despondent. I could see his wife, uh, you know, uh, through the window of their house doing the dishes. And then I walked toward the barn. I walked into the barn and I saw my brother take a shotgun to his head and blow mm. his head off and oh the gun gosh. roll into the, in the hay uh, to the corner of the barn. Mm-hmm. She said, it was so real that I'm just so upset. Please help me. He says, no problem. You know, like he's thinking, oh, this poor woman. Yeah. Um, and so he drove over there. And as they're driving up the, the dirt road to the farmhouse, they can see the wife doing the dishes in the window. Oh. And so they get out of the car and they walk over to the barn. And in the barn, she found her brother with a shotgun wound to the head, and the gun had landed exactly where she had dreamt it did, in the, against oh, the wall of the barn. my goodness. Um, now, once <laughs> Joseph Banks heard this story, he couldn't get it out of his mind. Mm-hmm. Now, he heard it from a credible person. This was his mentor at the University of Chicago. They were scientists. He was studying to be a botanist. Mm-hmm. Okay, these guys were scientists. And he, this this professor remembered this story because it was from his childhood and and his father who was a medical doctor told him this story and his father puzzled over it and he did too as an adult and he passed it on to Joseph Banks well Joseph Banks was a very curious man and he just couldn't let it go he became obsessed so he ended up opening up at Duke University uh, the Rhine Research Center and they have hundreds and hundreds of books because they interviewed thousands of people about their experiences and um, they're fascinating uh, you know it is a, a scientific um, exploration into everything paranormal and it's fascinating and they ran the Rhine Research Center from the 1930s to the 1980s mm-hmm. when uh, he and his wife retired and then I think after that shortly after that it moved off of campus to its own location um, but uh, again, you know, the the point of that story is he wouldn't have been interested in paranormal except that he experienced it through someone else, mm-hmm. someone he trusted. And the same thing with Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell, and the same thing with me, mm-hmm. and probably mm-hmm. a lot of other people who are listening to this. Yeah, it it is actually staggering when you think about probably the number of people who have either experienced directly or heard from a trusted friend or family member an experience that is so riveting that it, it grabs a hold of them and, and changes their life, actually. It really changes the way you look at the world. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I had to go through <laughs> uh, listening to a lot of people uh, from a lot of walks of life until it really drove it home for me because I don't experience these things myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, I mean, it was as if the process of writing the books was like converting me. <laughs> and, <laughs> And it was really, it was a fascinating experience. Okay. I got to talk to a lot of really wonderful, thoughtful people from, you know, across the country and around the world. Mm-hmm. And um, and I learned a lot. You know, I mean, there's, there's just something out there, and I don't know what it is. I can't tell you what it is, but mm-hmm. the world is a mystical, interesting place. 
Yes, definitely. I am thankful to people like you who do this research and, and collect uh, accounts and, and publish them and let people know that they're not the only one. This is this happens to a lot of people. And, you know, one day it may not even be considered paranormal. It may be considered normal. Well, I, I've talked to a couple of people. One of them, a psychic that I had interviewed in the first book, um, and she said <laughs> it was her opinion that, and, and Diane Hennessy Powell uh, also agreed with this, mm-hmm. Dr. Powell, that psychic ability represents an evolution of the brain. So psychic people are actually more evolved. So my husband is more evolved than I am. I hate to admit that, <laughs> but there it is. There it is. <laughs> um, yeah, there it is. And uh, don't tell him. Okay. And um, <laughs> so... In another 500 years, and this was something that the psychic told me, and this was something that Dr. Hennessy Powell contemplated, you know, um, it may be mainstream. Being psychic Mm -hmm. may be mainstream. That could be very helpful because I think it'll help us out in politics and in, you know, relationships and a lot of other things. If you if you can't really lie, if people, Good point. <laughs> if people really know what, <laughs> yeah. what's going on, what a different world it's going to be. Yeah. So before we get into these studies, I want to take a quick break. And then we want, when we come back, I want to ask you about a few studies that stood out. And then we'll go from there. Is that okay? That sounds great. All right. You are listening to Paranormal Underground Radio, and we will be right back. Close Encounters of the Christ Kind. Science fiction author Douglas Brody retells the life of Jesus according to ancient alien theory. As the Bible's angels are revealed to be extraterrestrials, beamed down to create a hybrid golden child who may just change the history of humankind for the better if another visitor from a far planet named Satan doesn't arrive first. The Planet Jesus Trilogy, Book 1, Flesh and Blood. For full background material and ordering information, visit planetjesustrilogy.com where the New Testament meets the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Cheryl Knight, editor for Paranormal Underground Magazine. And I'm Chad Wilson, Paranormal Underground Magazine's publisher. Every month, Paranormal Underground Magazine explores the unexplained by examining topics that range from haunted sites to ufology to cryptozoology. We also spotlight investigators and researchers who continue to pave the way in a field that seeks to answer some of life's most complex questions. If you want to read about topics like psychic phenomena, demonology, conspiracy theories, crystals and herbology, and much, much more, visit ParanormalUnderground.net and start exploring the unexplained today. Hey everyone, if you can't get enough of Paranormal Underground, then I've got good news for you. We're on social media. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and I think even on MySpace, and nobody has a MySpace page anymore. So check out Paranormal Underground on your favorite social media site today. Hey, are you looking for a new paranormal podcast? Check out All Day Paranormal with me, Crystal Vermis. And me, Manny Vega. We come to you every week with the latest in supernatural news and entertainment. That's right, and you can find out more by going to GetSpooked.net. And don't forget to check out our YouTube show by going to GetSpooked.net slash YouTube. The Crusaders are commonly thought to have been motivated by their deep Christian faith. Crusades were actually war-inspired by the average of medieval ecclesial leaders who were only searching for total power and control. 
well played mind games which spoke about demonic forces, witchcraft and deadly possessions. Many Europeans gave in to their fears and banned the truth of an ancient and earthly civilization from their daily lives. It became an unknown world, not seen by the naked eye but capable of possessing your soul and in the worst case even kills you. In order to keep the people away from the truth, it had to be feared forever. Restoring the voice of our people, we give back what once was stolen from you. Your freedom and thinking, creating and believing. The Source of Immortality, written by Maria Anna van Driel, www.amazon.com Hey everyone, it's Karen Frazier, co-host of Paranormal Underground Radio in the Dark. Thanks for listening to the show. You've probably read my column in Paranormal Underground Magazine. I write columns about energy healing, metaphysics, and also dream interpretation. But did you know I also am an author of multiple books about metaphysics and the paranormal? You can learn more about the books that I've written on my website, authorkarenfraser.com. That's author, Karen, K-A-R-E-N, Fraser, F-R-A-Z-I-E-R.com. Hey everyone, this is Winter Balefire, contributor for Paranormal Underground Magazine, correspondent for Paranormal Underground Radio in the Dark, and now I'm very happy to announce a published author. My first poetry book, Love Letters Destroyed, is now available on Amazon.com, Lulu.com, Barnes & Noble, and other booksellers. Ebooks are also available. You can also check out pseudosynthpress.com for information on signed copies. Again, that's Love Letters Destroyed by Winter Balefire. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy. Where do you want to go to lunch? I'm having a stroke. Did you hear what I said? I'm having a stroke. Why aren't you answering me? I'm having a stroke. When someone is having a stroke, they may not be able to say it with words, but their body language will tell you loud and clear. Look for FAST. F. Face drooping. A. Arm weakness. S. Speech difficulty. T. Time to call 911 immediately. Know the sudden signs. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. And we are back. This is Paranormal Underground Radio. I am your host, Cheryl Knight, and I am talking with Louisa Oakley-Green. She is known as the Psychic Bystander. And today we're talking about her second book called Sightseeing in the Undiscovered Country, Tales Retold by a Psychic Bystander. And we were just before the break about to talk about some really cool consciousness studies that Louisa touched on in the book. And so Louisa, I want to start off by asking you out of all the studies that you yourself researched and, and, and included in the book, which one was, I guess, your favorite? Uh, my favorite is about something from the University of Virginia. They did a lot of uh, studies on human experiences and they felt based on what they had studied uh, that there were four reasons, four main reasons why consciousness does not reside inside of us but outside of our bodies. Uh, just like if you were to talk to somebody on a cell phone, that person isn't in the cell phone. They're projecting through a network through that cell phone. And the same thing goes with you, your mm-hmm. soul and your body. So your body's the cell phone and your soul's, you know, talking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of interesting. So I'll, I'll go through the four uh, things they found that made them feel that consciousness resides outside of the body. Okay. So number one, number one is deathbed lucidity. And what is that? 
that's when somebody has been uh, an Alzheimer's patient or they've had a stroke or a, a tumor, something that has made them unable to communicate with anyone for a long time. Suddenly, in the hours before death, they become completely lucid and can talk. And they can, uh, you know, communicate with people. In fact, uh, one study in, in the United Kingdom found that 70% of patients with dementia became completely lucid in the hours before death. So they're trying wow. to figure out, well, why is this? Mm-hmm. Well, they're thinking it's because when the brain uh, is damaged, it may keep a person from thinking. And as it dies, consciousness may be released from expressing itself through the brain. So it kind of bypasses that brain, and now they can kind of just talk. Wow. I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, number number two, mm-hmm. um, consciousness without a brain. Uh, there was a young lady who was in an automobile accident, and so... They decided they'd give her an MRI because insurance companies love that stuff. And she was an honor student, highly intelligent young lady, and when they scanned her, they found that she had nothing more than a brain stem. She had no brain. Wow. Well, according to modern medicine, someone with only a brain stem should not be able to form any thought at all. But obviously she didn't. She was quite intelligent. So what's that all about? Mm-hmm. Uh, reason number three, near-death experiences and probably your listeners are fairly familiar with those, and people pronounced clinically dead and then resuscitated, uh, near-death experiences are the memories of what they experienced during that period. Uh, Their accounts often include vivid perceptions of things they had no way of knowing that went on around them, which you could explain, but also sometimes miles away, which you can't explain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, And finally, and this was something you wanted to talk about, so I'll expand on it. Mm -hmm. Reason number four, past life memories. And they, um, I guess, 2,416 cases of very young children who remembered past lives. Uh, They spontaneously started talking about lives, usually between the ages of two and five. And those memories faded by the time they were about nine years old, sometimes a little earlier. Now, these children lived in remote villages and gave evidence of memories from people who lived too far away for them to have known that information. In many cases, the previous person's existence was verified, and the children recognized and named relatives and friends. This is kind of interesting. And, of course, you know, how would they know this? Mm-hmm. Um, to go a little bit more into the study on past life with children, because they really went very deeply into that. They had over 2,000 verified studies of, you know, children they interviewed. They found that in 50% of cases, children supplied details of the past life, and in 60% of those cases where the children had given them details, there were were enough details to positively identify the person in their past life, which is pretty amazing. That's amazing. Um, In 60% of the cases, the the previous life ended violently by Mm. tragic accident or intentional wounding, so there was a trauma that made them remember okay. this past life, mm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, now, let's see. When, when they were taken to the remote village, they, um, they found that the kids could identify relatives, people, places, things. Um, they also had behaviors that survived from their past life. For instance, uh, some of them wanted to dress and play like someone of the opposite past life gender. Uh, which should really make us think a little bit about uh, people who are gender confused because that may come from a past life. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them uh, would reject, for instance, one child rejected Hindu food 
that was not prepared in the past life Muslim manner that they had been accustomed to. Now, this small child is rejecting food be- because they're outraged that it's fixed, wow. it's fixed like Hindu, not Muslim. <sighs> um, which I thought was kind of, it also you know, shows maybe we should be a little bit more tolerant for, for religion because you may have been something different in another, another life. Exactly. Um, yeah. A lot of them harbored fears uh, related to the previous death, for instance, fear of water in someone who drowned. And some of them also possessed, and remember, these are really small children, unusual skills that they were never taught, such as playing a musical instrument. So here they go to the village of their past life, pick up an instrument, and start playing it. They've never seen this instrument in this life before. No one taught them how to play it. You know, they're mm-hmm. like five years old. <laughs> right. What's going on there? So, And some of them also had the ability, and I think we may have seen examples of this. I've, I've seen some in television programs. As small children, they could speak other languages. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and, and then that kind of faded away. Right. Um, so, I mean, these are really very interesting. And, you know, these are scientific observations. These are not made-up stories. Uh, I just find it fascinating that they had basically 2,400 kids. I mean, that's a large study number. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it not is. like five anecdotal stories. Right. These are like 2,400 children from all over the world who have detailed memories of a past life as a tiny child. And that fascinates me. Do you feel like, just looking at this one study even, that the immense amount of information collected, does that lead you to think that it is possible that reincarnation is an actuality? I think it's, it's possible. I mean, mm-hmm. anything's possible. I, I might not have thought it was possible <laughs> 25, 26 years ago, but at this mm-hmm. point in my life, I'm, I try to be open-minded. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was approached scientifically. These studies were done verifying the information they got. So, uh, you know, this is, this, is, this is the University of Virginia. This mm-hmm. isn't, you know, ghost hunters. Right, <laughs> so, right. Um, I'm pretty impressed. I know there's there's many other studies about the, spe- the specific topic of uh, children remembering past lives. So I'm sure our listeners can just Google it and they'll be able to see like studies done here recently. Oh, they're fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Another, I'm sorry, did you, did, did you have anything else on the um, University of Virginia study? I don't know if I well, cut that, you off there. Was, okay. No, no, those were the studies. And I, I just thought that it was really interesting what they've been doing. Yeah, that is that is very intriguing. I really hope that universities continue this type of work. It's very important, well, I think. Well, the University of Virginia will because mm-hmm. the reason why they do it at all is mm-hmm. because someone very, very rich died and left them money to do that. To do that. That only. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and so that's why they do it. Yeah. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't. What about the study that you talk about in the book, Let's see. It's from the United States Air Force, and it conducted studies on a growing number of pilots who had out-of-body experiences. Can you talk about that one a little bit? Yeah, and they they didn't um, commence the study with the idea that that's what they were going to be doing. Okay. The way. They were just trying to investigate something that was happening. Um, now... Uh, the, the study was done by Dr. James uh, Winery, and he was with the um, U.S. Air Force for more than 30 years. Uh, he's, uh, he works in aerospace medicine, and he was charged with solving uh, many problems, but one uh, that came up was related to the new high-powered F-15 and F-16 jets 
uh, and they pull more G's, more gravitational force, than the older jets, much more. Um, now, normally, the Air Force grounds pilots who suffer loss of consciousness while flying, and we can understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, but researchers were finding that with the advancing technologies, now perfectly healthy pilots were blacking out. And this was a problem, and they were, like, looking into it. Um, apparently, uh, the effects of, of, uh, on pilots of gravitational forces, the G-forces, exerted during rapid acceleration were to blame. Uh, a healthy pilot could function normally when exposed to uh, about 2.5 Gs or to 3 Gs. Okay. But the pilots of new fighter jets were regularly being exposed to up to 9 Gs. Wow. Which is, like, a lot. Um, so in 1983, so, and it, so this goes back, uh, when Dr. Winery became chief of the Acceleration Effects Laboratory at Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio, he launched a long-term study of the phenomenon, which became known as G-Induced Loss of Consciousness, or G-LOC. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to give it an acronym or it isn't real. <laughs> <laughs> um, more than uh, 700 cases of G-LOC were studied. That's quite a wow. few. Wow. Okay, that's a lot. Um, some from actual flights and others induced at his facility by placing pilots in large centrifuges that simulated G- flight G-forces. And what they found was that during rapid acceleration, a pilot's blood flowed into his lower extremities and away from his brain, resulting in oxygen deprivation. And this led to a period of unconsciousness that lasted, on average, 12 seconds. They're measuring this. These are scientists. Mm -hmm. Followed by another 12 seconds of disorientation. And when pilots were asked to describe what they experienced during these blackouts, a pattern emerged. So here's what they're seeing. First, they experienced tunnel vision. Then, while unconscious, many had short, vivid dreams or dreamlets, often about past experiences or family and friends. A significant number of pilots reported having out-of-body experiences, described as the sensation of floating above their planes and looking down at their bodies. Now, remember, these, <laughs> these jets are, are traveling at 9 Gs or, mm-hmm. I mean, whatever. Obviously, that's not the speed, but that's what, you know, the 9 Gs are what what's being uh, experienced because of how fast they're going. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're like floating above it, keeping up. <laughs> um, sometimes these experiences were ac- accompanied by feelings of euphoria or warmth. Now, if I were a pilot and I looked down and saw myself flying a really fast jet and saw myself unconscious, I don't know how warm I'd feel, but these guys, they were feeling warm and euphoric. Mm-hmm. And then... Some of them said they saw a bright light. So it's just kind of interesting that the symptoms uh, that these men were experiencing mimicked in medical literature what cardiac arrest patients experience. Mm-hmm. I was just uh, going to say, it's, it's, is it, it, it's, uh, it's not the same, but it's, it sounds very similar to near-death experience. It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, what they have in common is temporary blood deprivation to the brain. Okay. Um, and I thought that that was interesting. Um, the thing that I find fascinating, I mean, you could you could attribute a lot of that stuff to, well, that's physical. But when they start talking about being out of body mm-hmm. and looking down on the plane. And being able to describe like the, yeah, the surroundings. Yeah, that's and, yeah. more than just in the, in the hallucination. There's something mm-hmm. going on there, and that, that to me is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What other studies should readers who pick up your book be excited that they're going to get to read about that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, well, there's one on ghostly real estate, uh, which you need to watch out for if you're going to buy a house. So um, tell me real quick oh, about, 
Tell me real quick about that one. There's a legal status to that. It's called stigmatized property. There's actually a legal term mm, for, okay. for uh, parapsychological phenomena in the house. It, it's called stigmatized property. And if, if you read the book, you'll, you'll find out what that's all about. Okay. And, um, it, it's kind of interesting. Um, also, if you're about to buy a house and you want to know if somebody died in the house, there's something called died in the house or died in house. Dot com. <laughs> it costs something, though. It's not free. But they will tell you if anyone ever died in the house that you're thinking of buying, which I thought was kind of fun. Um, and uh, another study talks about the power of intention. And mm-hmm. uh, I found that interesting because that was a double-blind study. It was basically measuring tea that was blessed by uh, a Buddhist monk with good intention versus tea that wasn't and the effect mm-hmm. that it had on people. And it was very surprising what sort of effect it had. So, you know, next time I have an opportunity to get my tea blessed by a monk, I'll do it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things. Some observations uh, from a professional uh, ghost hunter on uh, why ghosts hang around, Mm -hmm. which is kind of fun. But I just, I found it interesting to just kind of go into these things and, and, and see what people who are trying to be scientific you know, have to say what they're what they're finding out mm-hmm. you know, about energy and consciousness and things like that. I just find that fascinating. I also like stories. I love, you know, that's why I have like more than a hundred stories in each. Book I love them. Yeah, I find people's personal stories extremely fascinating. But it's nice yeah. to have like a, salted in with that some studies and some history and things like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I my favorite thing is to read a book with case studies or personal accounts. That's my favorite type of paranormal book or metaphysical book. But I also think these consciousness studies done by the government and by, you know, universities and, and other type of more scientific institutions are, are are almost just as interesting because they're the complete opposite of the personal experience. Yeah, so. well, I, I think they certainly go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, we, we should honor people's personal experiences. I, I think you can learn a I lot agree. by listening to people mm-hmm. about their lives. But it's also interesting not to completely, you know, completely dismiss science either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think science can tell us some interesting things, and we'll probably have many things to tell us in the future. Definitely. Um, but I think you know, there's there's more out there than we can possibly imagine, and it's fascinating, and uh, I think it's uplifting. You know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Before we go, tell our listeners where they can find your books, and also where they can go online and find out more about you. Okay, well, I have a website, and it's called uh, psychicbystander.com, and um, you can go there to learn more about me and the books, or you can just go straight to uh, Amazon and look up Loitering at the Gate to Eternity or Sightseeing at the Undiscovered Country, or it might be easier, actually, just to look up my name, Louisa Oakley Green, because those are kind of wordy. I I was told that, you know, if you're going to write a book, it should be one word, the title should be one word, (laughs) I'm like, oh, well, I, I totally forgot that. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, of course, I have these long titles, and, you know, no one will ever remember them. <laughs> I love long titles, actually, because it, to me it tells me more of what's inside the book. <laughs> I well, understand. I trying to be, you know, poetic there and yeah. also show a sense of humor. All right, great. Well, I encourage our listeners to check out both of your books. The first one that you wrote was Loitering at the Gate to Eternity, Memoirs of a Psychic Bystander. And the second book, Sightseeing in the Undiscovered Country, Tales Retold by a Psychic Bystander. Thank you so much, Louisa, for joining us again. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I I love chatting with you. 
Thank you. It's been, I, I really hope you come back too. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be after you write your next book. So <laughs> it could be before. That's good because I'm getting the, the graduate degree first and then I'm going to go to the third book. So awesome. it may be a little while. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you. And for our listeners, please stay tuned to our correspondence segments up next. Hi, this is Marianne van Driel, Paranormal Underground Radio in the Dark Correspondent, live from Germany. When the world was created, countless centuries ago, it was made under a set of rules. Rules by which all times residents must obey. All things are limited to existing and in one place. At any moment to travel from one place to another, both time and energy must be sacrificed. But our world is not the only world. Sharing the same space beneath our limited senses lies another world. One likely much older. One where the rules are different. We should not know of this place and should kept separated. But sometimes those who inhabited this other world will cross over. What once was a normal part of life itself became a mechanical controlled power with some pharaohs, passed on to Jesus and his apostles and was thrown into the lap of King Solomon. This mystical knowledge, what we know today as quantum trapping, electricity and holographic projections was protected and hidden by the Templar monks after it was passed on to them by the Druids. Nicholas Poussin, like many other Grand Masters, spoke this language which is forgotten by many over time. A language which is also known as light and sound waves, geometry, math, astrology, and even mirrored holographic images. By painting mathematical formulas, which have the ability to measure distance as well as speed, depths, heights, Nicolas Poussin left behind the secret of life and its future possibilities in his paintings like The Shepherds of Arcadia. He granted you access to the secret of another dimension which lies in a controlled Euclidean space by breaking and controlling the light by using sound waves. A knowledge which is based on mathematical coordinates. Evidence of this secret and sacred knowledge becomes visible in churches and cathedrals, crop circles and even in the phenomena of paranormal manifestations as soon as you start to understand speed, velocity, pressure, fluctuations, light, food and vibrations, frequencies and time. During medieval times these light and sound waves were less understood by the local people as it is understood today, which made them afraid of it. 
Some church leaders from that period said thank you and poured it into a demonic vessel, while alchemists and philosophers started to pick up the knowledge the Druids passed on orally to those who were known today as the Templar monks. Nicolas Poussin was one of those people who saw how these light, sound and sine waves could be used in order to enter a complete different world which lies hidden between our world and the next. By using mathematical coordinates he found a doorway which led him to a world we know today as the spirit world. He rediscovered a natural created dimensional space which is also known as God's doorway or God's gate. So, did Nicholas Poussin understand the knowledge of King Solomon as well as how to manipulate the fabric of time and space? Did he turn it into a form of mechanically controlled time compression? And was this King Louis' greedy reason to hide the painting from the public view because he saw some power in it for himself, like King Solomon did. Is the true message in the painting of the Shepherds of Arcadia a multiplied coordinate system in which each coordinate has its own frequency like at Stonehenge? Do these frequencies create an energy point which can open a portal to another dimension inhabited by, for instance, an evolution in the phenomena of shadow people. Many questions indeed, but let me tell you a little secret in this. As soon as you apply mirrors and lenses to the frequencies in this field, you can create a tactical holographic plasma energy of anything you like, animals, peoples, buildings and even complete cities which can interact with the biorhythm of a biological object such as yourself. So was Nicolas Poussin really talking about an ancient evolution we know today as ghostly apparitions, shadow people, demons, angels? Or did he paint a secret passage to another dimension? in which your coded photon has undergone a different evolution, by using mathematical coordinates which are pointing to the exact location of this dormant world. If you'd like to be a guest on Paranormal Underground Radio, email editor at paranormalunderground.net. Until next time, keep exploring the unexplained at paranormalunderground.net.